I never stop thinking about design and new forms. Like, it's actually crazy. And mostly when I'm asleep, I like dream designs. It's kind of obsessive. Yeah, really, like I'll be sitting in a meeting and I'll just be like, oh, God, this is a really good idea. I can start sketching this. So it really doesn't turn off for me. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. We're chasing down the most successful female entrepreneurs from around the globe, not only to hear their life story, but to extract their knowledge and world-class insights. If you're smart, savvy and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths and actionable insights. Strap in. You may know the brand featured in today's interview, but it's unlikely you know much about its founder. Our guest is Sarah Munro. She's one half of the iconic Aussie label, Sarah and Sebastian, best known for its beautiful, fine jewellery designs. Sarah's always been a creative. She started handmaking her own jewellery back in 2012 while working in retail at Scanlon Theodore. Little by little, her friends and family started noticing the new jewellery she was wearing and soon she was fielding requests from others to make pieces for them too. After being featured in a magazine shoot, Sarah and Sebastian was picked up by the French high fashion boutique Colette, and it was then that things really started gaining momentum. A decade later, Sarah and her co-founder Robert now lead a team of 100 people, have stores in Sydney and Melbourne, and have expanded the brand into a whole range of services. Even though her name is in the brand, Sarah prefers to stay behind the scenes. This is her first ever podcast interview, and we're really honoured she's chosen to share her story with us and with you. So in this interview, you are going to find out who is Sarah from Sarah and Sebastian? For me, Sarah and Sebastian, I think was quite an organic journey. So I think, you know, starting from finishing my design degree at UNSW, I have always loved making things with my hands and also design. Uh, So while I was studying there, I did a major uh, in jewellery and also object. Uh, and furniture design. So one, once I'd finished my degree, I was working in retail at Scanlon and Theodore and every single um, moment that I had spare, I would be making something, making jewellery. And I, it was primarily for myself because at the time, you know, just sort of at the end of the 2010s, early 2011, the jewellery at the time was, you know, huge crystals, big, chunky fashion costume jewellery. And it's not something that I have sort of always been drawn to. So I just began by making quite simple, you know, wire constructions, really expressive and just, I guess, what I had lacked at the time. And by wearing it, you know, the girls in retail had sort of said, oh, these are amazing. You know, can we, you know, somehow get these as well? So I started making for friends. And then from there, I guess it all started to sort of pick up in the way that I had created somehow more awareness, just purely from um, meeting people and and showing people what I was doing. And then I think in 2011, a stylist had seen what I was wearing and she asked if I could make some jewellery for a shoot that she was working on. And I was like, yeah, sure. I hadn't thought about it. Uh, She phoned me a couple of weeks later and said, oh, guess what? You know, your jewellery is published. What are you going to call the brand? And At this time, I'd never had thought that what I was doing was actually a brand. And, you know, my dear 
friend Robert, um, his middle name Sebastian, uh, was helping me at the time. Uh, serendipitously, he has a goldsmithing degree in a past life. So mm. he was, you know, really technically adept and definitely could teach me quite a lot of the technical um, knowledge that I had not sort of received. So from there, we had called the brand Sarah and Sebastian. Uh, Again, I need to stress without thinking too much about it. It was just, you know, quite a fun little adventure. And then it sort of grew from the magazine, you know, stores were contacting us. I think we were a wholesale brand before a retail or online brand. Um, But then as you do, uh, you know, you need to have a presence online. So I quickly taught myself how to code. And I think it was like blogs, or WordSpace or SquarePeg or something and we had made like a, a website and, you know, you were sketching your logo. So that's how it kind of started. Um, so definitely look back. It was not well planned in any means but it was quite, you know, a fun adventure. Oh, that's great. I feel like you just kind of painted, yeah, a very large early picture um, there doing <laughs> all the things, which is so often what we end up doing when we, you know, uh, maybe more the creative side, but you, you're obviously fueled by this um, demand of these pieces and it, it organically, as it sounds, evolved into a bit of a brand and then a business. I want to talk about um, your business partner quickly, you know, Robert, you guys met overseas though, and then both ended up back here. Like how did you, you said he he has a um, degree in goldsmithing, which I, I, now I understand, you know, the, the desire and the attraction in that partnership, but tell us how you, how you guys met and then came back here and then kind of started this business as well. Of course. So while I was still at university, I had spur of the moment, I think you'll start to see that I do a lot of things for the moment in my life. (laughs) I wake up one day, I'm like, oh, let's just go and do this. Um, Had decided to enroll in an um, exchange program. So I picked up my suitcase and went to the furthest place from Australia that I had could find. And that was in Nova Scotia in Canada, which if you don't know it, is a very small sort of fishing village on the east side of Canada and it gets cold. So (laughs) I went in winter I had never seen snow and it, you know, (laughs) feels like minus 35 degrees was, you know, the forecast every day, but it was one of the best times uh, of my life. And I was fortunate enough that I did meet Robert at uh, NASCAD there and we were both studying uh, industrial design at the time and he was just brilliant in 3D CAD. So we had sort of connected in a class. He was teaching me a lot. He came from Germany. And then after we had finished our exchange semester and sort of parted ways, we did keep in touch. And he was wrapping up his uh, degree in Germany. And I was like, you know, Australia's so fun. Come back. Uh, so yeah, what was going to be a short holiday for him turned into, oh gosh, I think we're up to like 12 years later. Um, so yeah, that again, wow. it, nothing really was planned, but it sort of... Um, came together quite nicely. And so you just said before you're a very spur of the moment, spontaneous person. If you think back Mm. to the person that you were at the beginning, who was she? Was she spontaneous? Was she hopeful? Was she naive? Who was that person at the beginning? (laughs) Is she the same? (laughs) Uh, No, definitely not the same. I have learned a lot in the 10 years that we've had our brand. Um, Essentially, though, the same. So I think, you know, you know, definitely nailed it. I was naive. I was spontaneous. I think naive was a good word. 
and I think what I have sort of I pride myself in now is how much I've learned and how much I've grown as a person over the past 10 years creating this business and and doing what I do today so for me I would never change a thing if I look back you know every mistake every good decision has just been an invaluable lesson but yeah I think essentially I'm still the same person I'm I can't help but be true to myself Mm. in every single way. So I don't think I've changed much, but I definitely feel like I've got a lot older and wiser throughout this time. Do you think though that that naivety or just that kind of um, spur of the moment attitude, as you said, has helped inform or make the right decisions in the business? Like do you sometimes now find yourself overthinking things or second guessing, whereas back then you were like, you know what, this feels right, I'm going with it and it was just that pure... I don't know, that, that rawness and kind of the not knowing was almost a superpower. Look, I think it definitely helps. I've always been a big believer in trusting your own instincts and mm. just going for it. Uh, it's quite uh, funny. My husband now is in sort of safety and risk. So <laughs> I come home and I tell him about all these you know, <laughs> ideas and plans that we have. And he just runs through a list of every reason why this potentially could go wrong or what I have to think about. But it's not something I like to sort of take on board. And I think that just comes back to if I've sort of evaluated any plan or any um, decision that I've made and it feels right, I tend to go for it. Definitely now we, you know, put some numbers behind it and a little bit more data than what I used Mm -hmm. to. But um, I still believe in just, you know, that gut feeling and just going for it. Yeah, I love it. So looking back towards the early years, what was the point in the journey where the momentum started to really build and when you realised like this is actually an opportunity for something much greater than I anticipated? Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry, the team always joke that I'm a futurist because I have the worst memory ever. I think for me, you know, there were some key moments when we were building the brand. So I think, you know, number one was the decision to leave my full-time job, which was just huge. It was, you know, so scary. I'm not going to have, you know, any type of income. I am now just relying on Sarah and Sebastian to kind of survive. Um, So that was the first big moment. And that tipping point came when, you know, I was working till 3am every single day trying to get our online orders out and, you know, you're everything to everyone, your customer service, you're Mm. doing wholesale, you're, um, you know, working with PR. So I think exhaustion to the point where I said, I just cannot do both jobs. And then after that, quite soon after that, you know, a big moment for me was when we were picked up by Colette, which at the time was just, you know, the epitome of fashion stores. It was a store in France. And, you know, that was just beyond my wildest dreams that we were discovered by this international fashion destination. And then shortly after that was the uh, Net-A-Porter, you know, launching us to launch what is now so commonplace in terms of a jewellery category. But at the time, they coined the term demi-fine. And we, uh, Sarah and Sebastian was one of four brands internationally that were picked up to launch on their platform. And I don't think I'll ever forget, you know, the moment where they had placed the first order and I just, Mm. you know, oh, wow, this is real. I don't know... (laughs) So many of those moments, I think, happen in your mm. whole journey where you just have those pinch pinch yourself moments. Mm. But that's definitely for me, it was like, okay, this is what we're doing. We've carved ourselves this sort of niche category, which has now been acknowledged by one of the biggest international sort of online 
e-commerce platform. So yeah, that was great. It's huge. You make picked up sounds so easy. How were you picked up? Like how were you discovered? Who found out about you? How did they find out about you? So it was actually we were supported in the beginning by the Australian Fashion Chamber. So we would travel uh, with them twice a year internationally to showcase our jewellery in New York and Paris. That was such an amazing experience. I think at the time we were also collaborating with Dion Lee. So there was a lot of buzz around this mm. you know, new jewellery brand from Australia that not a lot of people sort of had heard of. And I think I actually can't tell you how we were picked up. It was just a lot of travel, a lot of emails, a lot of networking. I always, even now, I feel so odd to sell my brand. I, you know, it's not about the commercials for me. It's something that I love. You know, I love creating jewelry. I love design. I love the story behind everything we do. So then for me, sitting in these wholesale environments where you're, mm. you know, almost trying to sell your wares feels a bit bizarre but I think it was just we were genuinely excited about what we were doing and we just connected uh, with the buyers at the time and they believed in what we were making so yeah. We have a lot of um, you know I guess listeners and people in our community that are considering taking this leap you know and it is a tricky it's a tricky decision to make you know you said you were burnt out were there any other I guess considerations um, that you had to make when you did take that leap? Did you have a runway um, in terms of cash? You know, what were some of the other considerations you had to make or, or advice for anyone that is thinking of taking that leap? For me, you know, the financial consideration was huge. Uh, Robert and I, everything we've done, we've built off what we've had. So we've never had any external investment. It's really been about, oh, I can't remember what he says. I wish I could say it was so clever. Mm-hmm. It was like you buy sort of, a set amount of gold, you make something and then, you know, with that money, you can then buy a little bit more gold. And it just felt like that the whole time. So we're really Mm. sort of being very cautious with our spending and just every single cent we made went back into the brand. So not having that income from my full-time employment was huge. But I think at the same time, Again, I think it wasn't just a rash decision. We still were making enough revenue from Sarah and Sebastian that it was okay. I think being a creative, it's very different to having the creative sort of hat on and then setting up a business. I can't Mm. tell you how different it is. So I was fortunate that I had met this person who had a lot of financial knowledge, also how to set up a business knowledge. And he really did guide me into, okay, this is step one, go and find a great accountant, you know, (laughs) so straightforward, but you just don't think of these things at the time, especially if you've got a creative background. So, you know, things like a a P&L, a balance sheet. I was like, what are all of these things that I now need to, you know, like it's just, you know, part and parcel of your day-to-day now. But at the time, it was a really steep learning curve. Um, So I think if you have the appetite to learn all facets of a business and really throw yourself into not being just sort of that creative driver, but really understanding all elements of a business, I think if anything, it's just going to be a really interesting experience. Mm. Yeah, we, Caitlin and I often talk about this sort of creative commercial dance you have to do. You have to sort of, you know, carve out time for creativity, but you also have to run and manage the business. Do you find that balance hard? And do you ever feel like sometimes you get pulled more into kind of the operational business side of things and you have to be mindful around carving out creative time or vice versa? Absolutely. That 
feeling has never been so obvious more so than in the last two years, I think during COVID, um, because there is so much operational, there has been so much operational um, pressure in terms of, you know, navigating this new landscape of, you know, supplier mm. delays or shutdowns or COVID cases. And so I think, yes, big resounding yes, I have to almost force myself some time to be creative now because otherwise I could just, you know, get completely sidetracked in the day-to-day running of the business. And I think I always tell myself you can't forget why you're here and that is to create really beautiful products. So as much as, you know, the business side can be very time-consuming and can take all of your attention, that doesn't exist unless you focus on design and product. And, you know, mm. that's, I think for me, I have to remind myself of that. I think it's gotten a lot better in the in the past couple of years though as well. We've finally found this really nice place where I have, you know, the support in the, our leadership team who are amazing that I can now start handing a lot of responsibilities over, which, you know, as a founder, you're just, just like, you need to sort of feel like you need to be there for everything to guide people. <laughs> but just being able to let that go and say, actually, no, I've got a really fantastic team that can completely own this whole part of the business and I'm just going to trust them with it. I think that was a really huge, um, you know, relief for me, but also a learning for me as well to be able to just hand some of that responsibility over and trust that people are going to handle your business with care like you do. It's a challenge. It's really it's hard. It's a real challenge, especially when you have the vision. Yeah, tough to let go, tough to, I think, you know, sometimes communicate where you're going, where you've come from when people haven't been on that journey. Yeah. What does your team look like and how how do you communicate that? How do you take them on a journey, especially given the challenges that have you know cropped up for everyone over the last few years and maybe people haven't been at their best? How have you kept everyone, yourself included, inspired and motivated? Well, Robin and I have been so fortunate. So uh, we're just shy of 100 now across the business in our team and we have a fantastic uh, leadership team of 12 that we work really closely with. And they have been our absolute pillars over the past couple of years, uh, especially navigating through COVID. I was really proud of everyone just, you know, I think working so closely together in a smaller to medium business, I think naturally they do come on your journey. And when they see the passion from Robert and I, and, you know, we're always talking about, you know, our vision, where we want to take the brand, I think it naturally gets everyone I hopefully on the same page Excited. um but mm. yeah we felt we felt really really supported um over the past two years so you know it wasn't as bad as some of the stories that I'd heard from you know my friends who have brands who I think myself very fortunate and we've managed to sort of get through COVID you know and also come out stronger I think but could not have done that without the team they've just been really fantastic I want to ask a question about your business model because we have a lot of founders or people who want to start brands in our community who are environmentally conscious and socially conscious and want to start either, you know, fashion labels or jewelry brands or whatever with a made to order business model. And so I'm curious to know, obviously you started out that way. Do you still operate that way? And what are some of the challenges with a made to order business model, especially as you grow? 
Yes. So we still do. We have a team of 20 uh, in production on site. So that makes up jewelers and polishers, uh, stone setters. So we still have the made to order aspect of our business. We have though just purely to facilitate the volume of orders partnered with international manufacturers overseas, which if you want to go back into, you know, the ethical production model with it's been a challenge, uh, especially in the jewellery industry, because they, I don't think there's a lot of the same awareness there potentially as in fashion at the moment. But we pride ourselves in our very stringent, uh, I guess, vetting process of everybody's supply chains, who we choose to partner with. So those partnerships don't happen overnight. It's a very long process where we, you know, audit where they source their materials. Is it conflict gold? Is it conflict gemstones? What are their environments like or working sort of workshops? So we have got that sort of balance where I think 80% is now produced in Australia, 20% is uh, supported offshore. I mean, it's, it's the nature, I think, of the business. It's actually quite difficult to produce in Australia. There's definitely its challenges and it's purely just scale. For us, it's scalability challenges. There Mm. aren't the jewelers here and it's very hard to find people who are willing to do production work, who are, you know, skilled enough to to sort of create the jewellery that we do create. So it's quite difficult what we do. Uh, So that's the only reason we did have to look offshore and it's purely just because of the lack of resources in Australia, which Mm. is sad. Yeah, And it's something that Robin and I have always really fought for is to keep a lot of our production in Australia just purely for visibility and transparency. You know, we know exactly who's made the piece. We can work so quickly with them. We can be really agile in our production and we're proud of it being made in Australia. Um, But at the same time, we've had to let some of that go just to purely, you know, facilitate our growth. Do you offer some kind of training program to incentivize, you know, local jewellery makers? Um, I mean, obviously, you know, if, if, if you say there's a shortage, yeah, do you have some kind of training program or a way to be able to draw more people into this beautiful craft? Yes. So it's definitely on the plans. We're sort of setting up almost like a type of university. Uh, Mm. The reason we haven't launched it yet is purely resource, you know, we've really been stretched. So a few projects that we've wanted to launch, even just pre-COVID have been put on hold, but it's something that we really are passionate about. And I think, you know, investing in the future is really going to help you know, Australian business and especially jewellery businesses to grow. Uh, And we have the most incredible skill set in the team. And the teachers here that we have are also so excited to teach new people. So it's definitely on the cards for us. Yes. What piece of advice would you give to somebody who was potentially looking for, you know, a manufacturer here or overseas? What should people be looking for? What piece of advice would you give or what did you do that didn't go well that someone else might be able to learn from? <laughs> I think if you were to approach an external supplier or manufacturer, I think just really um, deciding on a, a fair level of standards that you can accept for your business and what you are happy um, to promote as your brand and then making sure that they reflect or replicate those standards or ethics or environmental um, considerations. So, 
I think as soon as you discover those for yourself and then you can go and wash it against everyone who you wish to work with. And we've had to have have those conversations so many times where, oh, okay, we can definitely see the traceability of their gold, but it's a little bit murky on their working standards. Absolutely not. We can't work with this manufacturer until they can, you know, provide some more accreditation or we can go and visit the facility. So I think that's an important consideration. Has it been tough during COVID not being able to travel and visit some of your manufacturers or kind of scope out new ones? And how did you get around that? It's been really tough. I think we're lucky in the jewellery industry that there is a fantastic organisation called the Responsible Jewellery Council. So there is some assurance there if you partner with the RJC certified supplier that there is an auditing process around what that business does. For us, over the past two years, we actually haven't picked up too many suppliers. Um, The ones we found have been sort of US-based, but that's sort of where, you know, this year, as I said, Robert's currently overseas now trying to find those new supplier relationships. Uh, So that's going to be back on track now, but it has been definitely a challenge (laughs) being in Australia for the last two years. Mm. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. I am dying to talk about your, I suppose, recent expansion, which is into services, the piercing labs, the solid bracelets, the engagement appointments. It's just like all of a sudden, all these incredible concepts just landed here. And I mean, it's it's so hard to not follow this online. Like I love it. Every it's everyone's finding a you know a beautiful moment, like a birthday, an engagement, and they're going in, they're going in with friends, with partners, and you know they're getting their piercings and their bracelets. Talk us through this entire like decision. I want to know: Did it start pre-COVID? Was it were there delays? Like, what's it done for the business? Because I've just loved watching it unfold. Oh, amazing! Thank you. So, yes, the services did begin pre-COVID. Sorted was our first service offering that we launched in 2019. Uh, It was a really fun project because we sort of created this concept of permanent jewellery and I think that that has fed sort of everything else that we have been doing. Uh, So, Sorted has been just such an incredible uh, success. And I think that it's created something really special for all of our retail stores Um, and just like another dimension of experience, uh, which I definitely think uh, bricks and mortar need, uh, especially, you know, considering the new environment and, you know, people being comfortable Mm. to leave their houses. So, yeah, so it has just been absolute ripper. And I think it's been fun because we've been able to design these really (laughs) cute little sliders and really have fun with the concept. So it's so personalized. People love going there. And, you know, the the customers that do uh, contact me and just thank me for the service, they've literally got, you know, five bracelets on with Mm. all of these sliders that mean something new, which I think is really lovely. Piercing was something that I have been working on probably for the last six years, but I never quite had, I've always had something jump up instead. And so it's always sort of been in in my mind on the back burner. Okay, yep, let's do the piercing. So we developed all the piercing uh, jewelry and we started selling that first. And we first launched that in 2016. And then, you know, more and more clients would come to us and say, where can I have your jewelry sort of 
can I pierce with your jewelry? And we we're sending clients, you know, all over the place. And then we thought, okay, maybe we should look at launching this ourselves. You know, we had had so many people contact us. And then it was probably two weeks after that conversation. And this is why it's just so serendipitous that Mecca had reached out and said, oh, hey, are you interested in offering a piercing service? And we're like, okay, this is definitely the nudge that we needed. It's a sign. Uh, exactly, it was. So my brand manager and I just, you know, completely threw ourselves in the world of skin penetration, body piercing, learnt, um, you know, it, and it sounds quite simple, but actually, you know, all the SOPs and all the procedures and everything that you need to mm. know about it, we need mm. to learn really quickly. Um, but we're really fortunate to have found uh, a really incredible team of piercers who have just been our, you know, guides along this journey. So we were really excited to have launched at um, Mecca's first flagship and that's where we launched our uh, Seren Sebastian piercing service. So we've still been there now. It's uh, almost two years that we've been there and since then we have had the confidence to now expand into our Paddington location in Sydney and um, Melbourne in Crosley Street. So that's just been so well received and, you know, we opened Crosley Street in Melbourne late last year We've been really unlucky with Melbourne, actually, just as a side note, over COVID. Every time we've decided to open a store there, we've had to put it on hold for like six to plus, you know, nine months waiting for it to be open. So it was finished in Feb, but we got to open it in November. Uh, And since then, it has been just fully booked with piercing appointments, which has been really great to see. And I think that's really just because we haven't, there's not been that luxury piercing service in Australia. So it's been really nice to offer that to the Australian client. And then finally, engagement uh, is something that Robin and I have always sort of worked on. But this year, well, since we've sort of started opening our stores, we've decided to really focus on a dedicated space. Uh, I think clients love our engagement service just because of the authenticity of what we design, you know, where we source our diamonds from, just being able to take our clients on a journey. And funnily enough, having Sarah and Sebastian for 10 years, we've sort of grown up with a lot of our VIPs as well. So, you know, from the early days, a lot of the clients that shopped with us in 2012, you know, Mm. maybe in their early 20s and now getting engaged and then they can't. So actually seeing those journeys is actually amazing. So that's something that's really special for Robert and I. So yeah, it's been quite good. I think having an experience uh, in each store location. And I think that's something we'll always keep in mind when when developing or designing new retail locations. So good. When do these ideas come to you? Like, do they come to you in a, in a spark? Do they come to you in a dream? Do they come when you're on a walk? Like, where do these really cool, new, exciting ideas come from? I never stop thinking about design and new forms. Like it's actually crazy. And mostly when I'm asleep, I like dream designs. It's kind of obsessive. Yeah, really like I'll be sitting in a meeting and I'll just be like, oh God, this is a really good idea. I need to start sketching this. So it really doesn't turn off for me. (laughs) I think that even more so just being so passionate about the ocean and and diving and really experiencing a different environment really sort of triggers those ideas as well. Mm. And I think that's what saved me for the last two years, you know, not really being able to leave, you know, let's be real, your house. Uh, I live in Clovelly, so I'm always down at, you know, Gordon's Bay snorkeling and poking my head in like, 
in, underneath rocks and yeah so I always find little ideas there um but yeah I can't switch off I just cannot switch off do you ever have downtime uh yes actually I do believe it or not I'm actually quite strict on my work-life balance so mm. I do enjoy a weekend and that's really important I think for me and for all of the team that we work with you know you can't take work with you all the time you have to switch off Mm. otherwise it's just you know burnout and no one wants to be burnt out or bitter so second you leave here that's it you just go and live your life and have fun and then when you come back it's just throw yourself back into it let's do it it's really hard to do that as a business owner yeah I, I think it came from you know just going back to those 80 hour plus weeks mm. where, you know, for most of my early 20s, I didn't, I really didn't do anything else except for build Sarah and Sebastian. No holidays, you know, every single weekend was work, work, work. So I think I, it was just after we, I, I actually remember this because Robert and I <laughs> called each other on a Saturday and we're like, okay, this is our first Saturday off. What do we do? <laughs> we actually went back to work because <laughs> it was the first weekend that we were like, okay, let's not you didn't do anything. Know. Yeah. And so it was actually quite sad. We went back to the office and did design. But, you know, I'll never forget that moment because it was, you know, five and a half years of just no mm. personal time. It was just felt like constant work. So now I think that's why I hold it so sacred. And, you know, of course you'll jump on a call or of course if anything happens, you're available. But just being able to say, you know, this is, you know, Mm. your personal time, I think I I actually really believe in it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, so many people say that, um, you know, those first five years are a slog and you kind of know whether or not you're going to make it at that five-year mark. And it sounds like you obviously tipped over that five-year kind of marker and then realized, okay, there is, you know, more to just work. And, you know, Anna and I have definitely struggled with that. And and you also become a bit, you become addicted. As you said, you didn't know what to do that first Saturday. You're like, well, this is, this is all I know. This is what I do, you know, and what else am I going to do with my time? And it takes, um, yeah, it takes discipline to actually figure out what else you enjoy doing with your time and going and doing that. Because as you said, you know, you find inspiration in other, whether it's at the bottom of the ocean, you know, or um, hiking a mountain, you do find inspiration in other places. So yeah, good on you for turning that around, (laughs) finding the balance. Um, I wanted to ask you something, you know, you spoke just before about your customers kind of coming on that journey with you and, you know, they may have been purchasing a ring or a bracelet in those early days for themselves. And then, you know, it's evolved into an engagement ring. And I tend to think of, you know, purchasing a piece of jewelry, it's such an emotional commitment. I think it's, it's, it is, it's, it's emotive. You're wearing it. It's an expression of who you are, but it's also very emotional. How much of the customer journey, I guess, from, you know, looking at it from as they grow and as their tastes change or as, as their needs evolve, how much of the customer journey do you look at when considering your designs and your ranges? I think of the customer journey, but actually most of our collections are really driven by a new concept. So I think naturally the collections, you know, I still design all the pieces that we launch. So I think naturally the collections have matured as I Mm. have matured and my tastes have matured. I I mean, I don't want to sound too sort of egocentric, but I think naturally it sort of happened that way. And then just 
you know, having that maturation with the collections complemented by, you know, either a conservation cause Mm. or, you know, a new inspiration. I think that's how our collections have moved. For engagement especially, we just try to cut out all of the noise and just create really honest, beautiful rings. What you could like now is maybe not something that you're going to like in 15 years' time. So I think just really going back to almost the basics and just, you know, showcasing the diamond if if that is what you like or showcasing a really, you know, simple gold band or a stone and just keeping it really true and mm. uh, honest I think is something that you can treasure sort of over time. So I guess for us, the, especially the engagement designs, is just really pairing back the design and just creating a really authentic, um, honest piece Mm. of jewellery. And when you market your pieces, do you lead with that concept, you know, that range, that, you know, that design, or are you tapping into the emotion? Like I'm so fascinated by how you draw in the customer or is it maybe not always an emotional purchase? We've always received a little bit of feedback that we don't have the emotional connection, I guess, as much as we like. I know it's quite funny. I don't know why I think maybe we do really focus on the story and the concept of the collection potentially more. Mm. So for me, I I think that's what differentiates our brand. Um, So I think that's what differentiates Sarah and Sebastian from other sort of jewellery brands out there. Every single piece that we do is so considered and every piece that I design I need to sort of somehow link back to the original concept uh, or inspiration. So for me, the storytelling part of where the design originated is a lot more important. And then I think naturally that will inform an emotional connection, you know, with the person who decides to purchase that piece. Um, I think that you know, jewellery is so personal. So it's really, you know, Mm. you might see something that someone else doesn't or they might see something that you don't. So it's just very, very personal. And I don't think we can control that sort of language too much. And I like people to just look at what we do and interpret it in their own way and find their own special meaning. So I think that's a lot more important. Yeah, no, I really like that. That's and it's true. You know, it is. It is. It's you know, you 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 assign a meaning to that piece. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's kind of nice. And that's probably what I have enjoyed about the brand is that you can assign your own meaning rather than feel like it's being assigned to me. So yeah, it's quite fluid. So yes, yes. So we often think about our business as our child. (laughs) Caitlin and I are best friends. We're business partners where we feel like we're married and Lady Brains is our child. And I think as business owners, we have a relationship to our business. How do you feel about Sarah and Sebastian today? And do you love it? Do you love your business? Okay. (laughs) Yes, I love my business. Um, I used to feel like it was my child. I think that I don't feel that way as much anymore. Um, And I think it's only because I have been able to give a a little bit more away sort of over time. So, you know, I think our brand is definitely not about me at Mm. all. It's about all the people that come to work and do this every day. And I think that was, you know, a slowly, that's something I sort of realized over time. And I think that makes 
what I do so much more special. So it's, you know, it doesn't fall on me. It's not about me. It's about everyone who's here. Uh, I think that Robin and I are so lucky to have such a strong uh, relationship. And I think that's what's got, got us through sort of, you know, the past 10 years is just having that that sort of rock that you can, you're not doing it by yourself. Um, so I think that's definitely what helped. But yeah, not so much the baby anymore, kind of like, you know, a oh, younger yeah. sister, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, but she can walk and talk. Yeah. Still kind of need to look over her, after her, but she's like, you know, independent herself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, like in, it's like a teenager now. <laughs> Doesn't need you all the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's actually quite a good analogy. <laughs> yeah, I like that. The business is growing up. Yep. And what about yourself? What about yourself in terms of growing up? What's been one of the biggest things that you've learned about yourself as you've gone through this journey of building a baby into a into a younger sister? I think um, having a business, you have to learn a lot about yourself, whether mm. or not you want to. Um, so I think that, you know, just being 100% more self-aware, a lot more sort of accountable, you know, the way that I approach everything now I can't just you know fly by the wire I do have to consider you know what the effects are I think over time I've realized I I actually don't want to uh, run the business or manage the business so we're definitely on a journey to find someone who can sort of take over the operational and the business side so I can just step back into my creative space and that's something that I really now miss and I just want 100% focus on design and concept development. So I think just having that realisation where I'm now comfortable to sort of give the business over to be sort of led by someone else so I can go back to what my, you know, contribution is and what I actually love was a huge decision but it's something that we're sort of focused on now for the next 12 months to sort of transition into that where, you know, Robin and I can just focus on design and really beautiful product. How did you come to that decision? What were some of the conflicts or kind of like internal back and forth that you were experiencing? I think, you know, COVID really stretched us and I don't want to sort of you know I've definitely got COVID fatigue but it was such a challenging time and I think just you know really being honest with yourself and I've just I feel like Robin and I have taken to the business you know and we're so proud of where we've taken it to this point but I actually don't really know where to go next and I think it's about time that we bring on those external skills and expertise Mm. and just having that sort of you know yes, this is a good decision. Let's do it. It's, you know, let's go this way. Mm. So, yeah, I think that just knowing your the limit of your knowledge uh, and being okay with that is really invaluable. You know, I, I don't think anyone's an island and I don't begin to know the first thing about a, a lot of things in my life. So just being okay with that and just saying, yep, someone else can actually run this now is kind of, it feels really good. <laughs> it feels good. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I and you know, it may not be that we look at COVID in the most positive light right now, but I do believe that there are decisions that people have made about themselves and who they really are and how they want to lead that have come out of that kind of fatigue over the last 2 yeah. years. Like there are some there are some truths and realizations about, you know, oneself that that I think are going to push us in a really good direction. Um and so totally you just kind of going yeah, going through that and then going, you know what? that's not how I want to live anymore or run my business anymore. I, I want to go in this direction. That's been a silver lining. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I would never look back um, with any sort of regret or, you know, frustration. I think everything 
is a positive and, you know, I'm really excited mm. for the next few years at Sarah and Sebastian. Oh, well, we're super excited too. And one final question. Yes. What is one unconventional piece of advice that you would like to leave our listeners, our audience of entrepreneurs or almost founders? What's one piece of unconventional advice you'd like to leave them with? It's probably my mantra um, Mm -hmm. and it is that people are everything and I think that it is probably, well, no, it's actually business and personal related and I think that sometimes you can forget the effort and energy and love that everyone puts into what you do and, um, you know, you you can't forget that. You can't just ignore everyone else's effort and I think it just goes back to what I said before that everything you do is so much bigger than you. And I know that I couldn't have got to where we are today without everyone who I've ever worked with and just being grateful and appreciative of everyone that you've met on your journey and just not forgetting that. So for me, it's just people. There was a lot that I took from that chat, but I think one of the things that Sarah said that really resonated with me was know the limit of your knowledge. I think as business owners, especially in the early days, we kind of, we have to do everything but we feel like we need to do everything. And I think, you know, she said that they're looking to get a CEO on board to help them grow the business. She's taken the business to this stage and her knowledge thus far has got her there, but she knows she doesn't necessarily have the knowledge to take it even further. So yeah, I really love that. Know the limit of your knowledge. Yeah, I agree. I read something the other day that said, we're all ignorant, but what do we choose to be ignorant in? (laughs) So, you know, it's almost like, where do I want to upskill? Where where do I feel comfortable? What do I want to do with my time? And then every other area you can choose to allow someone else to fill in the gaps. Yeah, absolutely. I also really liked when she said, don't forget why you're here. And I think you and I have been speaking about this a lot in terms of it's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day, the emails, the to-do list, but like don't forget why you started the business. Don't forget why you're here. And I feel like that almost can pull you back into that creative space of, yeah, creating. Yeah, you, you can get on that treadmill, can't you, of treadmill of life and business and just keep running and then, you yeah, you're like, oh, God, what am I doing? And that's why I, I like that we, at the end of every year we step away and focus on why are we here? So what are we doing? I also really liked if you don't put boundaries up between work and life, you'll become burnt out and bitter. And this one is difficult because I think work and life definitely blend. We speak about this. We live we live and breathe work. But we also have become burnt out and a little bitter at times. <laughs> Would you <Yeah>. agree? A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think we speak a lot about being burnt out. But she is right that when you get burnt out, you become bitter at the thing that burns you mm. out. So like if you don't take mm. time off your business, you almost start to hate it a little bit and resent it. So yeah, I, I love that too. Yeah. You don't want to hate it. No. <laughs> the last one that we, I think both took away, which really, you know, it's truth. People are everything, you know, they, um, they definitely make the journey more enjoyable and, you know, it comes back to like, know the limit of your knowledge. You know, there are other people out there that know things better than, than we do and we want them on board. 100%. You can't do it alone. And also, like, why would you want to? No, you don't want to. Boring. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the episode. You can find us at ladybrains.com. Follow us on the gram, lady.brains. And come and chat to us in the Facebook group, the Lady Brains Clubhouse. We dissect all of these kind of conversations and there's so much else in there that you can find. 